Hey, welcome again to, uh, whoop, got to get that mic in front of my face, uh, to another uh, episode, chapter, installment of Too Lazy to Write, the website, or the website, the, the webisode, the podcast where, uh, how's my song go? Too lazy to write where everyone is welcome. Yeah, that's right. You're all welcome here. Um, happy to be back again for the sixth week in a row. I've yet to miss one. I might be a bit late next week because I'm going back to Canada for a week. Gotta go back to Canada, eh? They think I'm slow, so I write with round paper or whatever the thing in The Simpsons was. I'm very excited about today's um, today's uh, episode. Today's episode brought to you by Turtle Wax. Turtle Wax. Removing barf from my rug upstairs since the dog started throwing up. Uh, Turtle Wax, Rice-A-Roni. These are all go-to, very lame, very easy um, references to make when you're talking about things that are brought to you by because it was popular in the 70s. Um, anyway, neither here nor there. Today's episode, we travel halfway around the world. Well, we travel across the pond, as they say, to Wales, where I speak with my good friend, my old friend, my friend from 25 years ago, almost, Mr. Paul Harris. Um, and we had a great little chat. We covered a wide range of, of, uh, of topics. Um, and it was, it was truly great to catch up with him. And I hope you enjoy it. It was uh, done about a week or so ago. Paul was in his car uh, talking to me on Skype. And uh, we chatted for probably about 35, 40 minutes. And uh, I really hope you enjoy it. Here it is, Paul Harris and the real John Baker catching up. Um, yeah, go at it. All the way from, <laughs> you're in Wales, right? Yeah, I'm in Wales right now, sitting in the, well, it's actually stopped raining. Yeah. Do you know, one of my, uh, one of my fond memories of our time together on the kibbutz uh, was we would go see, well, I think we pretty much ended every day, um, we'd have a cigarette and a cup of tea in the Chadarochel. That was like, that was a really uh, fond memory for me. Happy days, yeah. Uh, and noblesse. And noblesse. noblesse. And the um, the cups or the glasses there were like this dark brown. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's right. The dark brown. Yeah, the the, the milchik. Yeah, don't mix up the milk with the meat. <laughs> I, but I yeah. also it was a clear glass with the with the with the meaty glasses. Right, and the and the milk ones because I never drank uh, tea with milk until I met you. And uh, oh right, okay, um, yeah. But the other thing is when I when I talk to people about meeting you, and uh, you and Rich were were uh, my roommates when when I first arrived, and the first thing we sat in the sukkah, which had just been taken down because sukkah had had just ended, right? And um, you asked me if I masturbated. <laughs> Why did I ask you that? Because the previous roommate you had i believe a, a kid named jonah <laughs> yeah yeah i remember now <laughs> he masturbated i guess a lot yeah. yeah it was high on the agenda at the time i think uh. 
So I was like, oh, that this... was the first thing I asked you. Am I got, did I did I have like a sort of wry look on my face, you, or was I deadly earnest? Oh, you were deadly earnest, and you scared the hell out of me. I thought we are just not. This is not going well at all. Like, oh, oh shit. Oh, I apologize for um, making you uncomfortable uh, back it back then. It worked out great. <laughs> it worked out because some of the best days were the days we spent together in the in the Pardes. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. That's some of the happiest days of my life, without a doubt. Um, I love working there. Yeah, that was the Citrus Grove, yeah. for the, anyone that might not know what that is. Yeah, that's still to this day, I say to people, that's, I think that's, uh, I, I used to be a tree surgeon as well, and that was a very good job for a while, but um, I think the Citrus Grove is the best place I ever worked. Yeah, we were, yeah. I, I also think I was maybe in like the best shape of my life. Like, yeah, smoking yes. a, an incredible amount of cigarettes, <laughs> and, and this, yeah, <laughs> and and soaring branches off happily, and, yeah. uh, and schlepping of, buckets of fruit around, and all that kind of thing. And of yeah, course we yeah. had a great, we had a great boss. Yeah, we had a great boss, a uh, man by the name of Shimon Ben Yosef. Yeah, citrus orchard uh, extraordinaire. Are you? Yeah. Uh, are you still in touch with uh, Shimon at all? Not really. Um, sort of. I mean, I, I kind of know roughly where he is. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and I am in touch with. I am in touch with his brother, and uh, I'm in touch with other friends, mutual friends of ours from the kibbutz days. And I very much miss him. I was the last time I spoke to him was on Skype a few years ago, just before uh, he was just about to move. Actually, he, he he'd lived on the kibbutz for something in the region of about 25 years and uh he uh was about to embark on a new chapter of his life and he moved from the because where the kibbutz we're talking about was is right down in the south of israel Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. desert and he was moving up to somewhere near the lebanese border at the other end of the country um but (laughs) i think i think the weather had a lot to do with it as well i think he'd uh progressively started to suffer in the the summer down there and um yeah last time i spoke to him it was i think it was a summer afternoon and he'd just come in from work and i could see through the sort of skype screen i could just see how hot it was there and how uh knackered he was and he was just like um i can't take this heat anymore (laughs) he moved there in about 1979 or something like that i was just like wow okay it got to you in the end yeah and so he moved up north. To, he was he doing, moved up he, north. He was a yeah. tour guide, right? The last I heard, he was he was a tour. Yeah, guide. same here. Yeah, I don't have any up to date details, but I imagine he's probably still doing that. So yeah, if anyone is looking for a, a tour guide visiting the Holy Land, Shimon Ben Yosef, he is your man. He is the best in the business. Yeah, so, as far as I know. So um, you and I met back in ninety uh, two. Ninety three. Yeah, ninety two. And yeah, the winter. Yeah. Yeah, and so we we obviously we have a, a friendship, and then we we don't talk to each other for a long time. And this is the part of the podcast that I want to get into: is <clears throat> what the hell happened after you know, like ninety four, let's say, and and to get you to to Wales right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Quite a bit, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> um, well. I think the last time I saw you was when you you came. I see. I lived on the kibbutz for about six years, right. Right. Um, and 
beginning from when we were roommates, more or less. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I stuck around and I became one of the uh, residents there and what have you with a permanent home, if you like. I'm, I made Aliyah, I became an Israeli citizen. And um, I ended up getting drafted into the army. So the last time I saw you, I think, was probably on one of those weekend leaves yeah. uh, when I was home for home for Shabbos. Yeah. And uh, and you, I can't. When you came back, were you were you basically just a sort of uh, visiting as a guest, or did you come back and like I'm just going to be a volunteer again for a few weeks? It was or, like a guest. What was it? It was like a guest volunteer thing. I I came at the end of uh, May. I think it was, and I stayed till August. Right, that's and, quite a visit. Yeah. yeah, and I, but like the first time I, I went, I went through like the kibbutz Aliyah desk in in New York, and I did like all the paperwork and everything. Yeah, got yeah. all the visas before. Um, yeah, did you get a free flight? No, no, no. I, I, that I that. okay. But then the the second time, I just showed up. I remember showing up at the airport, and they were like, "Why are you going to Israel?" Um, <laughs> And I said, oh, I'm going to work on a kibbutz. And they were like, do you have any documentation to show that? I was like, no, I'm just, I'm, I have friends. And like, I, Barbara told me to show up. It was all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then that time I worked with um, Diana in Noi. And it was so Diana and Ruth. In the gardening. Yeah. And we were going like off the kibbutz every day to other projects about. Oh, wow. I wish I'd been a part of that. I'd forgotten that. Ruti, our friends Ruti and uh, Diana. Yeah. I remember that Diana worked in the gardening. I'd forgotten completely that Ruti did that for a bit. Oh, and uh, and that you were working. Yeah, there were contracts, yeah. weren't there, on yeah. other other kibbutzim and uh, places nearby, and that must have been a blast. It was because we would leave. Um, th- there was one kibbutz that was like five minutes north. Like it was it was super short. I think we were even coming back to Keturah for for our meals. It was that short a drive. Yeah, um, yeah. But there was another one that was probably, I want to say, thirty minutes north. I don't remember. Yahel, Yahel. Maybe it probably was Yahel. Yeah. 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 And we we would go there, and then we'd work for about forty five minutes, and then somebody would have to go to this little kitchen area, and prepare breakfast, which was the best thing to do because you got out of the heat and you got to stay there <laughs> for like two <laughs> two hours because <laughs> you'd make your breakfast and you'd have to clean up. It was. Right, so you'd get there in the morning and you'd kind of like doodle around with some pruning shears yeah. for a little while. I'm like, right, well, I better go and uh, yeah, better breakfast. go and make breakfast. Yeah, it was great. It was great. I can't remember who else was part of that. Uh, that sounds like out. a fun time. And we, so that, that this was '95 when you came back. That yeah? was uh, no '94. That was the summer of '94. Oh, summer of '94. Oh, okay, that's yeah. when I was I was in basic training in the right. summer. Yeah, with yeah, which... with one of the Marco Schemer boys, I believe. No, he. Did, I was in the same unit, but he had just uh, he had just uh, got out. I think oh, okay. he was like a year ahead. Okay. And yeah. he 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 got out uh, round about the time I went in, and so um, I'd had. It was good though because it was kind of like a like a very brotherly kind of a thing, you know, like your big brother at school. Yeah. And yeah. I got I got a few tips and uh, don't do this and and uh, make sure you make sure you bring that and all that kind of thing, which was good because basically when when anyone in Israel that gets called up one of the things is that well pretty much everyone does it uh, I think it's slightly different now but still the vast majority of people do national service and it being 
conscription, like you're, you're, if you've got an older brother or an older sister, they've all done it, and your mum and dad, and they've done it, and yeah. your, your, your grandparents may even have done it, you know, or depending on how old everyone is. But so you're going to get all that advice, and when you're a little kid, you're going to remember your big brother coming home on leave, and you're going to absorb all that knowledge. But me being a new immigrant, I didn't have any of that. But I did have a lot of friends at the kibbutz who had, had also gone through that process. Right. And I remember one, one of the bits of advice, because I was cacking myself with fear before uh, the, the, the big day comes where you have to go get on the bus to the induction center. But my cousin who uh, lives on, lived on the kibbutz too, one of his jobs, uh, Mike, is the, I don't know if he still does it, but he was the uh, hairdresser, like the barber. Yeah, okay, I remember that. The kibbutz members. I remember him saying to me, like, because uh, he's from the north of England, so he's got a little bit of an accent still. And he said, oh, it's like the male equivalent of giving birth. You know, like, you'll be all right. got to just come through it, you know. And he, he was he, he was right, really. So like he said, if I, if I can do it, you can do it. And, <laughs> and uh, he was right, you know. He was... Um, it was a bit of a daunting experience, but not too bad in the end, really. Not then, that big a deal. How long were you in the army for? Well, it was about two years. It was two years, okay. yeah. Well, funnily enough, when I was called up, so it, it was June 94, June the 2nd, to be precise, because the, the date is totally etched into your memory because mm-hmm. you get the... It, there's a long build-up to it. You get your letters, and you've got to go and report at a school in a nearby town, and that's when they check, give you a medical checkup, and fill out loads of forms, and one thing and another, a couple of brief interviews, and um, excuse me, and they'll uh, they'll give you a maybe a hint about what unit you're going to end up in, but you don't really know for sure until you turn up in the induction centre. And all I knew was that going into the process, everyone gets a medical assessment and you get assigned uh, a physical profile. And if your physical profile is above a certain number, then pretty much, unless you're a complete nutcase, you're going to be put into a combat unit, whether you like it or not. And uh, now I'm short-sighted and uh, (laughs) I'm not the finest physical specimen, but I ended up with a profile of 72 and apparent, and I think the I think the threshold for combat units was about sixty something. And it's strangely, actually, it's not out of a hundred; it's out of ninety-seven. Oh. And that's the maximum profile is ninety-seven. And there's all kinds of rumors and 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 stories about why it's ninety-seven and not a hundred. And the, 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 your Jewish listeners may be able to make a guess or two about why it's ninety-seven and not a hundred. I don't know, okay. but uh, right. I don't know the reason. But anyway. So um, I knew I was going to be in a combat unit, which I was kind of terrified about. I didn't want to be in the infantry or the paras or nothing like that. Because not being, I was 22, which was a, at the time was a massive difference from 18 to 22. Yeah, because yeah. I think most of the 18-year-olds getting called up, they're straight out of school. And there's a lot of bravado and gung-ho, macho bullshit as well. And uh, a lot of people want to go into certain uh, elite units or, or the sort of the, the, the units with the big uh, ego as a sort of badge of honor. Well, I didn't at all. I just wanted to be somewhere where I could keep my head down and um, and just get through it, you know, and preferably be as near to where I lived as possible. But where I lived was sort of in the middle of nowhere, being down in the desert. And so yeah. there wasn't yeah. a lot of options. But I was I was hoping that I'd get in a put sent to a base that wasn't too far away. 
Um, but I was there on the 2nd of June and they kept you there for two or three days and you're in these tents and you know, there's a lot of waiting and you're getting shouted at by sergeants who they're not going to be your sergeants. You're not in training yet, but they're just these random sergeants who like when you queue up for lunch and stuff, they just shout at you and thrust, a, a, you remember a Magevitz, like a squeegee. Yeah. 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 You, have to, you have to squeegee the floor as, uh, constantly in the army before a meal and after a meal and like, before supper and after bedtime and you're constantly squeegeeing the floor and they're shouting at you to squeegee over here and squeegee over there and all this crap. And that goes on like that for about three days. And eventually your name gets called and you get, you're, like, you're on that bus over there and you still don't know where you're going. Okay. And okay. you get on the bus and you sit down and it's only then when you sort of start asking everyone around you, where are we going, where are we going? And they're like, oh, we're going to, we're going to a tank base. And I'm just like, oh, okay, thank God for that. Because um, I knew they were fairly close to where I lived. Okay. So I was in the tanks and then two years rolled by and I, I got out. And uh, went back to the kibbutz. <laughs> and you spent another few years there. I spent, uh, I got back, yeah, I spent another uh, two years in the country. Okay. Um, I, before I moved uh, out of the country, I, I left that kibbutz. I moved to another kibbutz um, near, near, near the Gaza Strip. Not inside the Gaza Strip, but close to it in the sort of western Negev. Okay. And um, I worked there as a sort of hired tractor driver slash citrus farmer for a while i needed to make a bit of money yeah. um yeah. and uh that's what i did and then i and then i left the country came back to came back to london came back, and then you started actually wait before we leave the kibbutz and before we leave israel i think we need to discuss uh karaoke night which i still remember fondly. <laughs> yeah yeah me too me too yeah because the kibbutz would do like activities every Sunday. It was it? Yeah, it was every Saturday night, right after Shabbos would end. Oh wait, no, hang on. Wasn't it? Wasn't it part of the music week? Or maybe it was part. Yeah, you guys. Every you had a on. band that you played with with a bunch of like really young Australians. You remember that? Yeah, there was there was it's it's a classic sort of kibbutz thing. There's always like a pickup band yeah. from one year to the next, depending on who's who's visiting and who the volunteers are. And I was in a two or three different bands and my the aforementioned mike harris my cousin he's a he's a very good drummer and he's always been in bands and so there's people there's a couple of members like him who are different musicians and there'll always be a, a some band or or other yeah. doing a yeah. doing a show for the members which is one of the great things about uh that kibbutz and a lot of kibbutzim you they're great at sort of entertaining themselves and amusing themselves as part of the part of the downtime activities, if you like. And that was definitely one of them. But every year on Torah, there was a, a week of music. I think it's usually in the middle of the summer. And that's like a real, that was one of my favorite times of the year because it would be like a party week, basically. Yeah. I mean, you'd be going to work as normal, but every evening there'd be something or other. It might be a, a one year there was, a, I think they'd been there a few times. There was a gig from the band called, uh, they're called the Black Hebrews. Because okay. that's the community okay. up in. Did you ever? Did you ever remember in the Demona area or Besheva area? Um, they used to be. I don't know. They still do this, but they used to uh, occupy themselves in the bus station selling bits and bobs and trinkets and things like that. And they live just outside Besheva somewhere. Okay, and, and they're, uh, they're mostly immigrants from Detroit. Oh, <laughs> and yeah, and they're. Um, I don't know exactly what they're. they're 
sort of legal status is. I think they, at some point in the 90s, I think the Israeli government finally recognized them as citizens or, or permanent residents or something or other. They're basically uh, people from Detroit who uh, uh, believe themselves to be uh, the, the real Jews, the real children of Israel. Okay. And they're, um, they're, it's a community. I don't want to call them a cult because I don't think they're a cult, but they're a community and they, they are very peaceful. And as far as I know, they just they uh, employ themselves and make a living somehow. Uh, but one of the things they do is they're in various bands and, and choirs and what have you. And they got this band that came to visit us for the music week and they were really good. They used to get, they probably still do, a lot of different uh, very top quality musicians would come and visit and perform. Like uh, Carol King one year came and um, yeah, and a, an Israeli musician called Yair Dalal, who's uh, uh, a, a, an excellent uh, oud player and, and a great sort of classical uh, Middle Eastern musician. All sorts, every kind of genre, and it was always a real treat. But in between, in between the sort of uh, the A-list headliners, some evenings there's a little bit of more uh, basic entertainment, and that's when they did the karaoke evening, okay. I think. Yeah, that sounds about uh, yeah. right. And, and to this day, I think I, I might be forgetting an occasion, but I'm pretty sure it's the only time I've ever done karaoke. And we, <laughs> it we, couldn't be battered. <laughs> and we did Tom Jones, I believe. It. We did. Not unusual. We did. It's not unusual as a duet, which yeah. was kind of... <laughs> yeah it it's, was i mean how could you not you know like the music kicked in and we were, we really went for it and it was a lot of fun well we sang a lot in the uh, in the pardes we would sing all the time yeah i was thinking about that when you when you contacted me to do this i was thinking oh, i've got to talk i've got to mention the work songs you know because well, <laughs> workers in the field but they were happy songs you know <laughs> yeah they were and it was a great futsa that we worked with. It was it was you and I and Diana and Sh oh well, it was Sherry. Oh, yeah, Sherry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sherry was lovely, and so was Diana and Shimon, who we already mentioned. Yeah. Um, it was a great team. There were others as well. Louise um, was uh, there. I remember Louise was. Louise, there. yeah, yeah. Sarah, Sarah, who's uh, just become a rabbi. Oh, uh, oh, I don't know if you knew that. No, I remember. And. Her. Yeah, and it, there were some great people that worked there, and we it was a really brilliant experience. It was a great team, and but the work itself was we were growing pomelo and grapefruit, and uh, very satisfying. And uh, well, it's, it's it's kind of part of the reason why I ended up leaving Katura was I, my heart was broken really when uh, when I when I finished the military service. <clears throat> The, uh, the citrus grove had been shut down, okay. unfortunately. It had always been, a, always been a bit of a battle to keep it going. Uh, politically, it was um, slightly divisive. There was an economic sort of argument being made that it, it wasn't productive enough. And um, there were those that were for it and those that were against it. Because one of the problems in agriculture in Israel is that the what they call sweet water that you need to grow certain fruits, including citrus, um, is very expensive. And it, it's all from uh, a desert aquifer and it's piped in uh, and it's, uh, it's costly. So it, it, needs to, it needs to be shown to sort of be worthwhile, essentially. And the argument was made that it, it wasn't worthwhile enough. 
And so I, I had been all the time I was in the army, and, and trust me, when you're in the army, you have a lot of time to think. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I've, I hope I don't ever have the opportunity, but I imagine it's, it's quite similar in some ways to being in prison, because you spend a lot of time confined and uh, without the freedom to go, come and go as you please. And, um, and one of the other things you do a lot of as well is a lot of guard duty, and so you're sort of up at night um, trying to keep yourself awake and thinking about all kinds of things. And one of the things that I would always think about was going back to the kibbutz and going back to that job where I was really, really happy. And I just, as far as I was concerned, I was I was prepared to do that. I don't know if I would have done it for the rest of my life, but I was, I was, I could see myself doing it for many, many years, you know, and, and being very happy doing it. And I felt a little bit um, uh, slightly aggrieved that the sort of opportunity was taken away from me and there was nothing I could do about it obviously it was a it was a collective decision of the community and that's one of the things you've got to accept when you live on a kibbutz you've got to pretty much abide by the decisions of the of the community that's that's kind of how it works and so that that did break my heart really and um that's when I started thinking about leaving um but it was other reasons as well I mean I don't know if you want to get into into it too much but the politics. <laughs> I mean, where do you where do you start? Yeah. But um, it's obviously a big subject. But that this is I'm talking about 95, 96. There was uh, well, Itzhak Rabin was assassinated, and then there was um, then there was a wave of really awful terror attacks and bus bombs and one thing and another. And that was the run up to the general election in 96, which was the first time that Netanyahu won and okay. came. To came to power. In fact, as a matter of fact, I remember the election day because I was still in the army. And by then I was, uh, I was a sergeant and um, I, was one, I was near the end of my time. And my last job in the army was like being like a drill sergeant for new recruits, which I perversely kind of really quite enjoyed, actually. <laughs> Did you ask any of them if they masturbated? <laughs> <laughs> no, I did not. No, no, I did not. But it was um, so. It was one evening, and it was it had been election day, and all of the soldiers in the army they they go and vote uh, somewhere on the base, and then um, it was the sort of evening parade, like in your in the barracks, where you sort of sum up what's happened that day and what's going to be happening tomorrow, and any special instructions or briefings and things like that. And it was this is about eleven o'clock in the evening, something like that, and it, it was my my turn to sort of do that. Uh, parade, as they call it, or Mizdar, and um, one of the last things I said was, uh, the um, the uh, ballot closed an hour or two ago, whatever it was, and because it, Israel's such a small country, and also because of the electoral system, there's no there's no precincts like in America or constituencies like in the UK. You've got one list system, and essentially it's if uh, the Likud gets 50% of the vote, they get 50% of the seats. So it's, it's relatively quick and easy for a, a, a pretty accurate exit poll to come out. So the exit poll comes out about five, ten minutes after the, the, the ballot closes. And it obviously dominates the TV and the radio. And so we heard on the radio in our barracks, the exit poll has come out and uh, Shimon Perez has won the election. for he was, he was the outgoing prime minister and he had been re-elected, just yeah. squeaked home. And uh, so I, I informed, obviously, the army is an apolitical organization and you don't really discuss politics openly, particularly. But it was just a sort of a, a notification, if you like. I just informed the platoon that 
the election was the, the the exit poll has said that the uh, Labour Party has won, and uh, there's no change in in the control. Uh, good night, you know, everyone dismissed sort of thing. Went to bed and woke up the next morning and they were wrong. And overnight, as the votes were actually counted, um, Netanyahu had won, and so that feeling. Uh, just uh, over a year ago when uh, America and probably the rest of the world woke up to well, it woke up in Europe but in, in, in North America were like in the evening finding out that Trump had actually won yeah. that sinking feeling yeah, of dread yeah. uh, that, was, uh, that was very familiar to me because that's exactly how I felt in, in 96 that day and uh, yeah, and so uh, the Likud came back in and um, the direction of the country, it felt like after all the optimism of the Oslo process and, mm -hmm. and Rabin and uh, shaking hands on the White House lawn and all that sort of a thing, it, all the optimism of that time kind of evaporated very, very quickly. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I thought that um, I, I wanted to go back to go back to London and uh, and maybe try something else. And then we're fast forwarding a lot, obviously, but. You went back to London and you got this career. Uh, <clears throat> is it fair to say that it began, like what you're doing now, sort of the, uh, I can't believe I'm going to say the seed of it was planted, uh, but but the seed was planted when you were on the kibbutz? Oh, absolutely, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Because I, I always liked trees as, as a kid and, you know, like, uh, climbing trees, basically. Uh, who doesn't? And... Um, but that was about it. But when I when I first went to Israel, and then not long before I met no no, round about the time I met you was when I I started working in the in the Pardes as well with you and others the other gang and uh, loved it. And that was really the first time I'd done any of that kind of work and found it very rewarding and satisfying. And yeah, it started there. I learned how to prune trees and uh, take care of them, and uh, it's definitely started there. So I found myself back in London. I didn't really know what to do for a while. I, 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 um, I'd had a, I had some savings, and I was doing some sort of gardening work and bits. Of, I did some translation work for a while, which was interesting. One of the jobs I did, uh, I don't know if you heard of uh, this organisation called Peace One Day. There was a, there was a documentary film made. The guy's called Jeremy Gilly. He made a doc. He, he started uh, harassing people at the UN uh, for long enough, and they eventually started uh, meeting with him. And one thing led to another, and he started filming these meetings. And uh, he was campaigning to get, I think it's September the 21st, I think is the official UN World Day of Peace, which has never been observed and never been recognized, really. And he started a campaign to try and get it more properly observed around the world. And he's had. He's met with some success over the years. But anyway, the initial documentary film, which I recommend to people, it's a, it's a good doc. Um, one, of the, one of the segments of that film was about uh, one of the uh, leading Palestinian uh, negotiators at the time. This is in the late 90s now. So there wasn't a whole lot of negotiating going on, but nevertheless, there was this guy in place. He was a former terrorist. And uh, Jeremy also met with... Um, Shimon Perez at the time. Anyway, I helped out with some of the translation for that. That was that was quite interesting, but it obviously wasn't really a long-term thing. Um, oh, I worked at, um, any of your listeners that know London, I worked at the Victoria Railway Station for a while okay, in okay. the lost property office, which was uh, a lot of fun. Um, 
surprisingly enjoyable actually uh, and in the left luggage there were some strange things left behind uh, from time to time yeah well one day we found the someone had left a bag in one of these lockers and it was we weren't sure what it was at first and then uh, figured out that it was yeah it was a, a, a penile extender oh. or, or a pump some kind of <laughs> okay so <laughs> the things that people uh, take with them to London uh, yeah anyway they left it behind so there was that, but anyway, one thing, and I worked also for this firm called, this design cooperative called Tomato in London that was, at the time, uh, had, had had a lot of success in the sort of design world and the art world, and I was a sort of a production assistant runner character for a while, which was very enjoyable, but um, again, wasn't really leading anywhere, and it was, it was after 9-11, one of the one of the less relevant outcomes of that tragedy was that um, apparently, so I was told at the time, the, this firm that I worked for, Tomato, they they also were in the sort of advertising field as well because they, they created content and all that sort of thing. And apparently the advertising world was hit very badly uh, after that and, and business completely dropped off. That's what they told me anyway. And they, like, they laid me off. They had to cut back on staff. And so found myself unemployed and thinking, well, what the hell am I going to do? And then I, uh, some bit, a friend of mine just sort of made a suggestion uh, that I, because I, I, they, they actually had a place up in the mountains in Spain where we'd been on holiday the summer before and I'd loved it. And I'd, I'd pruned all their trees for them around this old ruined farmhouse and was really in my element. And uh, so that friend had sort of suggested, uh, why don't you think about tree surgery? And I started doing that in London. So I am um, working for other people's firms, climbing trees and swinging around on ropes. And wow. that was that was a very enjoyable job. It was really demanding, though, physically. The hardest job right up there with the hardest job I ever had. And, and, and I was in pretty good shape at the time. And um, but really, it's the sort of sort of business you want to get into when you're 18, 20, early 20s, not 30, yeah. as I yeah. was. So it was it was hard going, but I did like it. But after a year or two of doing that, I, I kind of, uh, within the firm that I was working for, I, I kind of migrated more to doing the the uh, white collar side of that, if you like, like the actual inspecting trees and writing reports and uh, that sort of a thing and giving professional advice. So I went and did a little bit of um, academic training and night school and got my uh, got my qualifications and, and then... Uh, became a tree consultant, which I did for a few years, and that's what happened. And um, I ended up working for myself for a few years, and it took me to the point where now I uh, manage the trees for one of the local counties uh, in South Wales where I live. So I'm working for the for the council, basically, which is it's an interesting job, but it's it's it's, it's very demanding. There's a lot of stress on public services and cuts and uh, being overworked and all that kind of a thing and it's uh, it's a challenge put it that way it's very very hard work but uh it's it's good i'm always busy and you know the the time flies <laughs> here we are 25 years later i know it's been 25 yeah that's that's hard to believe but it, but at the same time whenever i mean we don't really chat a lot we spoke what for the first time on the weekend i think right yeah yeah but it uh, it's almost it, like somebody had 
mentioned to me on Facebook because I did that interview a few days ago with my old camp counselor Ruth, and they talked about the summer camp we went to. They said this magical place in you know northern Ontario somehow yeah. brought us all together, and we've all remained friends. I mean, not all of us uh, from Couture at that time have remained friends, but this strange little place in the middle of the Arava, you know, made these lifelong connections. Yeah, yeah, it was a spe- it is a special place, definitely, yeah. and uh, that was a very uh, happy time in my life, and I guess in your life as well. It, it was, and the friends that we made are friends for life, and it's like you know you can pick things up a decade or two later, yeah. and it's as if we saw each other, uh, you know, a few weeks ago or a few months ago. It's great. Uh, now, before we wrap up, because I don't want to have any more issues with the computer, but. Um if I do get to uh, the United Kingdom this summer, we're for sure going to get together. That's yeah, that's absolutely. gonna that's gonna be great. Yeah. The other thing is the new question now. My final question I'm going to start asking people is, um, if you were to be on a chat show, as you call it over there, like yeah. a, a Graham Norton type thing, um, yeah. What music do they play you out to? They say, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Harris, and what's what are they playing? Right, I'm very glad you asked because I did I, I did hear your last show and I thought that's a great question, and uh, it's uh, I, I've always been asking myself that question like here's a theme tune for this, here's a theme tune for that because you know we haven't even really talked about music that much, no. but that is one of our mutual passions I know mm-hmm. and um, I I was like wow what would I I don't know it's tr- the first thing that I thought of actually is there's this really um, there's a really you know the tune shortening bread yeah no. there's this really you know, uh, the, my, I don't know the words because it's like it's American. Okay. Okay. Shortening bread. There's a funky version of that, but I couldn't couldn't remember who it was by. So that's no good. And I thought there's two Beatles tunes that would suit me, and I can't decide between them. You can choose. You know, one is uh, Dizzy Miss Lizzy, okay. and okay. the other one would be Hey Bulldog. Oh. They're both both great tunes. Yeah, oh, yeah. That's are you are you are you allowed to play them? I don't know. I <clears throat> and I don't even know if I have the skill to edit them. So I'll try to. I mean, I'm not making money off of this, so I don't see why I couldn't play them, right? Can you hear that? Oh, are you playing it right now? Yeah. No, I can't. But I imagine. Ah, uh, too bad. Oh well. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's my tune, though. <laughs> so it's either Hey Bulldog or Dizzy Miss Lizzy. Okay. Yeah, you, I can't decide between them. They're both good tunes, yeah. Do you know what popped up in my Facebook feed? Because, you know, Facebook has that one feature on this day, and I always look at it to see what I've... Yeah, posted. yeah. Uh, on this day, for some reason, and maybe it was because springtime was in the air, I had posted a video, uh, just the, the audio of the song Makulele. You remember that one? Oh, yeah, I remember the name. Oh, I'm going to have to look that up. Was, I remember it's a Brazilian do, do, tune, do, yeah? Makulele. I can't sing. Yeah, yeah. I remember that disc that it was on. Yeah, I don't know. That's somewhere in the house. Yeah, I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, it was like a David Byrne Brazilian compilation. That's right. That's right. It was one of them. Oh, I know. I wanted to ask you something. I wanted to ask you something. Because all these years, I've been trying to remember, was it real or did I imagine it? But um, you told me about this song about uh, Big Joe Muffera. Big Joe Muffera, Muffera. sure, by yeah, Stomp and Tom Connor. 
oh right okay i didn't know who it was and what it was what's it you have to tell you have to send me how to spell it because okay i gotta look that up um, yeah well hold on I, can't. I remember you telling me about it and i thought like yeah that sounds like a, a really good bit of uh i heard you use the word canadiana the oh, other day sure. i like that yeah he, yeah, um, yeah to stomp and tom was this interesting guy he was like basically like a troubadour musician and uh yeah he died a few years ago okay but every yeah, I think I, I think when I came to the kibbutz the second time, I had his greatest hits. And is that one of his best? That is one of his best known tunes. Oh God, yeah, Big Joe Muffera. B. So it's Big Joe, and then M U F F. Yeah. E R A W. Muffera. Okay. Yeah. I'm gonna it, find it, that. It yeah. talks about. So yeah, it talks about where I grew up. But anyway, okay, we're gonna end it there because I it, this is gonna crap out on me again. I'm gonna get a new computer. Okay, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for asking me to do it. It was great talking to you, Paul, and I hope I'm going to see you in a couple of months. And then before I uh, wrap it up, because that was the end of the initial uh, conversation, Paul then sent me a a voicemail, um, a voice message, which, uh, well, I'm going to let you hear it. It it sums up his thoughts and says a few other things. And uh, so here it is, Paul, uh, from the voice message that I got his postscript. Hey John, I hope you can hear this okay. I just thought I'd send you a quick uh, postscript because I, I uh, since we finished, it was great talking to you. I really had a buzz from doing that. I, I, that's I, I'm worried now that I come across as a little bit manic, maybe, and uh, I hope that isn't the case. I know we we rushed and we also had a few technical difficulties, and so I hope it just is is, is coherent. But I wanted to. I realised that I didn't. We, there was no explanation about why uh, why you were asked a question about masturbating when you turned up in my apartment uh, to share with Richard and, and me. Um, they, I, I think you almost mentioned it, but then we got we, we went off on a tangent. There was a guy there before you. I, I you might remember his name. I can't remember his name, but yeah, he had been. Uh, doing the do in the room which was kind of uh, at night and uh, it was pretty unsettling under his bed covers and uh, I don't know, it was a pretty stupid thing to ask you anyway but we just didn't want another, we didn't want the, 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 the same scenario repeating itself I think. Anyway um, yeah it was really cool talking to you and there were so many other things that I wanted to say and I can't remember what they are now but uh uh, I hope you can use it, and uh, let's get in touch uh, sometime, uh, hopefully when you come over. It would be great to see you. The other thing I wanted to say was that one of my dreams still is to do some kind of a tour slash vacation where I try and hook up with as many of my friends in the States and Canada as possible and, and visit you all over there. It would be, it'd be a dream come true. Anyway, good luck with the podcast and uh, speak to you soon, hopefully. All right, take care, man. Bye-bye. So that's it. Paul Harris and I catching up. Two old friends just getting reacquainted with one another. And where did we meet? At the magical place in the Arava, 30 minutes north of Elat at a kibbutz called Kibbutz Katura, where just uh, to summarize, Paul and I were roommates for a brief period of time then he went off uh, and got his own place. We worked together religiously in the Pardes, pruning trees 
and uh, just uh, doing many, many different activities. We'd prune trees together. We would have cigarettes and tea. Um, we would go to movies together. We would just catch up and laugh. And anyway, he is uh, a great guy, and I hope to see him this summer if I make my way over to Europe. Um, so there it is. Thank you for listening to yet another installment of Too Lazy to Write. Uh, you can listen to me on my website, toolazytowrite.com, the number two, the word lazy, the number two, the word write.com, uh, available on iTunes and on Google Play. It's also available on the website. There's a form on the website if you want to get in touch with me. You can also find me on Twitter, at the real John Baker. Uh, don't know what I'm going to be talking about next week and who I'm going to be interviewing in two weeks. I have no idea. It's all up in the air. I'm trying to find some people and track them down and get them on the phone. So thank you so much. I do really appreciate that people take time out of their day or sit in their car or go for a walk or whatever. Listen to it while they're making love with themselves or to their spouse. That would be fucking weird. Uh, okay. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye now. Too lazy to write Where anything can happen And everyone is welcome